service in Egypt, Joseph rose through the ranks to become the overseer of the house of Potiphar, an Egyptian ruler. The Lord blessed Joseph in this position and caused him to succeed in all he was doing. For this position brought temptation for Joseph. Being a desirable man, Potiphar's wife made advancements towards him. In a display of righteousness and integrity, Joseph resisted these pursuits. But due to this, Joseph was placed in Potiphar's prison unjustly. In this prison, it seems Joseph's dreams died, yet the Lord's favor still rests upon Joseph. Good morning, Crossroads. How we doing? Uh, what a great time of celebration. I want to welcome our Lexington campus. Can we give them a hand? We love you over Lexington. Those of you in Shelby and those of you online, we're thrilled to have you with us this morning. If you would take your Bibles out and turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 33, Genesis chapter 40, page 33. We're going to walk right through the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church to you. Uh, we're excited. we got some exciting things coming up. Uh, we have our Easter bas- baptism. We're going to be having baptism on Easter Sunday. We're excited about that. If you have not been baptized, we'd love for you to sign up. We'd love to talk with you about what that means. Uh, we also have some exciting events. This Wednesday is our Living Room Reset with Kirk Cameron. And we are so excited about this moment, a chance to really engage couples and families and uh, if you're here, and, and this is a great date night, so men, let me encourage you, invite your, your spouse and say, let's go on a date together. By the way, if you're single, you can still come and learn about marriage and family and raising kids. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic time with Kirk Cameron. As you know, Kirk Cameron was a well-known, uh, is a well-known Hollywood star. He was uh, the star of the show Growing Pains back in the day uh, and has been a part of multiple movies like Fireproof that's really stirred this Living Room Reset tour. I had the privilege of talking to my good friend Kirk Cameron the other day. And uh, he actually sent me a private video, and I want to show you this private video. So take a look at this uh, from Kirk Cameron. Hey, you guys, this is Kirk Cameron, and I'm really excited to be coming to Crossroads. I was just speaking with Pastor Dave about his sermon series on Joseph, and it was really weird. He just started to break out in this spontaneous wrath. Like he was saying something like, uh, Joseph had a coat, a coat of many colors, but was thrown into a pit by his evil, angry brothers. I'm not sure what that was all about. But I do know that on Wednesday, uh, I will be in Mansfield for the Living Room Reset event. And I want you to come. It's a home run date night for you and your spouse to download essential principles that will help you to make your marriage all that you want it to be and to help create a home that is full of blessing and protection for your kids. So hurry up and get your tickets. Bring your friends to the Living Room Reset. I can't wait to see you there. Uh, The rap didn't quite sound like that. It was better than that. But uh, we had a great conversation. I tell you what, you want to be here. It's going to be a great time. Stop by the Info Center to get your tickets. You can learn about how to get those. We'd love to connect you with that. It's going to be a fantastic event this Wednesday evening. Uh, Genesis chapter 40 together. We're in a series called 
dream killer. And we've been talking about this story of Joseph. Joseph, the patriarch in the Old Testament. Joseph, the great-great-grandson, the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham, who had Isaac. Uh, Isaac then had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob then, who had many sons. Uh, uh, in fact, Joseph is the 12th son of of Jacob. And so we see this story unfold in Genesis chapter 37, and this story takes up the predominant portion of Genesis, the story of Joseph's life. And as you know, God made a promise to Abraham that said, Abraham, you're going to have uh, uh, many blessings. You're going to have many blessings, but you're, many of those blessings are going to be found in the children that you have, children like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And I will make of you a great nation, God said to Abram. Abraham then had his promised son, Isaac, who then had Jacob and Esau. And if you remember the story, uh, Jacob kind of runs away. He steals the birthright from his older twin brother, and he runs away, and he finds himself at Uncle Laban's house. At, at Uncle Laban's house, he works seven years for the wife that he wanted, but he tricks him, and he doesn't get that wife. Instead, he has to work seven more years to get his wife, Rachel. And so at the time we pick up the story in Genesis 37, uh, Jacob has four wives, 12 sons that we know of at the time, so that means Joseph has 11 half-brothers, he has one half-sister, and then he has a full brother named Benjamin. And so when we read this story, we see dysfunction written all over it. But that dysfunction is enhanced by these dreams. Joseph, being the prized son of Jacob, had these dreams that says his brothers would bow down before him, and this creates tons of chaos. In fact, what we see Joseph in this story is he goes from the prestige and privilege of being in his father's house to being thrown into a pit by his brothers, to being sold as a slave as property on the slave trade market, only to then rise in position in Potiphar's house and captain of the guard of Egypt, then to be perjured by Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison. And that's where we left off, is Joseph is in prison. If you were to write this story, it just goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And you wonder, are the dreams of Joseph ever going to come true? And we said that these dreams that Joseph had were certainly from God himself, and that you and I also have dreams. Different than Joseph's, Joseph certainly had a particular purpose, which was to preserve the people of Israel, to preserve the nation that God promised Abraham, to go and preserve them in a time of great uh, degradation. But for you and I, we also have dreams, dreams about life. Dreams about our marriages, dreams about uh, one day having a spouse, or one day getting a job, or one day having a house, or having possessions. We have dreams about life, and these dreams also are given by God. But we saw in the beginning of this series, we went right to the end of the story, and we saw this dream that Joseph had about his brothers bowing before him really came back to who God was. In Genesis chapter 50, at the end of the story, as his brothers are bowing before him in fear that he's going to get revenge on them, he says to them, do I stand in the place of God? In the moment where his dream was actually satisfied, in the moment his dream was actually fulfilled, he doesn't take credit for it. Instead, he realizes the dream all along was really about God. And so we're watching the journey as this dream seems to be dying only to find out that in the end, God is the ultimate dream. That God's glory and God's goodness in our lives is what all the dreams we have about life really is about. And that's the story in, of Joseph in a nutshell. It is all about God's work to bring himself glory through the life of Joseph. 
Now, I want to remind you, as we, as we journey here in chapter 40, that Joseph has no clue what's happening next. We talked about this in one of the parts of this series. Joseph has no clue about the future, right? It's not as if God has whispered to him and said, hey, hey, hang tough, kid. Don't let him get you down. In just a, a little while, you're going to become the prime minister of Egypt. God doesn't tell him that. There, this isn't a fairy tale. When Joseph is stuck in prison, he has no knowledge of what is about to take place. In fact, we could see in this story that this becomes his final descent. What happens as a dream at the beginning has now led him into this prison, and he has no clue as to how he's going to get out. In fact, I want to go back and just remind us these little notes that we have about Joseph from Genesis 39. At the end of Genesis 39, we see this note. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, we know this is not Joseph's knowledge at the time. This is Moses writing this, giving us notes. Notice the, the word Lord there. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And I want to keep reminding us, whenever we see that, that's the name given to Moses at the burning bush. This comes decades later, years later. This, I mean, hundreds of years later, God comes to Moses to release the people out of the land of Egypt. Moses is writing that. Moses is giving us a note to say God is with them. But Joseph doesn't have the inside knowledge of this. Joseph has to trust by faith that God must be with them. But Moses tells us, in fact, Didi was with him, and he made him prosper even in the prison. So we come to chapter 40, and here's the interesting part of chapter 40. Chapter 40 begins with Joseph in prison. Chapter 40 ends with Joseph in prison. Be encouraged. It's not an easy chapter to follow because literally it begins with him in prison, and it ends with him in prison. And what we get in the midst of this, there's no way out. He's stuck in prison. He can't appeal his sentence. There's no process for that. What we find is Joseph waiting. Joseph is waiting. Let me just ask you, anybody here like to wait? No one here likes to wait. No one likes to wait. No one, we don't like to wait. By nature, we hate waiting. By nature, we are a busy culture. I, I call us a giddy-up generation. We want what we want, and we want it now. I mean, we don't want to wait for elevators. We don't want to wait for traffic lights. We don't wait for our turn at the intersection. We don't like to wait in line at the grocery store. Uh, I always go through the self-checkout thinking it's going to be longer, and then I tend to wait, and then I get up there, and I don't know why the sirens go off every time, and something's not right, and he keeps saying, I got to bag the grocery, and I did, right? And it just takes longer and longer and longer. I mean, think about it. We wait for our computers to load, and we can't stand that. We even wait for the microwave, the microwave which was supposed to keep us from waiting from the oven, and yet we wait. In fact, just the other day, um, we got a ring on our doorbell, and um, I, I wasn't at home, but I was told this story, and uh, there was a package delivered, and my youngest son, uh, I don't know why, he thinks every package is for him, 
And so there's a package delivered, and he goes to the front door, and he brings the package in, and Allison wasn't, wasn't there to, to open it. And he yells up to, to, to Allison, to mom, and says, hey, mom, there's a package down here. And she goes, all right, just leave it there at the, in the doorway. And the whole time he's wondering, is this package for me? His birthday was in January. Is this an extra special gift that I didn't know I was going to get? And he was all excited about it. Um, and, then, and then finally, Allison was working on something, and she came down and said, all right, let's, let's open the package. And they, they opened the package and she had ordered, she's figured out how to order online, and when they don't have certain things, you just give it delivered to home, and it's free anyway. And she had ordered toilet paper online. Can you imagine his face? He was waiting literally hours to open this surprise gift, and he does, and it's toilet paper. And uh, my wife got a little chuckle out of that. Statistics show that we hate to wait, but yet... In our American culture, if we live the average of seven years, studies will show that we will wait for nearly five years of our lives. We will spend waiting for something to happen. Maybe for you, it's waiting for those grades to come in. Maybe it's waiting to graduate, waiting to attend college, waiting for that first job offer, waiting to see if the bank will actually give you a loan for that business you want to start, or waiting for, to meet that right guy or that right young lady, waiting to be married, waiting to start a family. Is it time? Is it not time? Waiting for someone to buy a house or waiting for that house settlement to come through. Maybe it's waiting for prayers to be answered in your life. Maybe it's waiting to find out what God wants for you next. Maybe it's waiting as you've been praying for a loved one to come to know Jesus Christ, and you just seem to be waiting. Waiting could be called the mantra of life. Many of us find ourselves in waiting seasons. See, the problem isn't waiting. All of us wait. But the problem is what happens in our hearts as we wait. See, the issue is not waiting. All of us wait. The issue is what's going on in our hearts, what's going on inside of us as we wait for many there is growing impatience. There is frustration. And can I tell you this truth? Waiting can become a place where dreams go to die. Waiting can become the place where the dreams we have about life go to die. You dreamed about being married, but you're waiting for that right person. You wonder, God, maybe this isn't what you have for me. You're waiting for that child, and you're saying, I just want to have a family, and it just doesn't seem to happen. You're waiting for that prayer to be answered. You're waiting for doctors to get the report. I know I've been in that journey, and can I tell you, that waiting journey is tough, and I've been going through these health things, and I go from one doctor to the next doctor and get more testing and more testing, and I'm just waiting for the results. And I know some of you have walked through that in deeper ways, and you're waiting, and you're wondering, and you're questioning. You're saying, God, what's going on here? I feel like I'm waiting. And waiting can start to turn in our hearts, and slowly it can create uh, a place where our dreams get swallowed up in the waiting season where we stop wondering and questioning about where God is taking us and think, well, God, this is where I'm stuck at. When we read this chapter, we almost get that implication with Joseph. You wonder if he feels the same way. He is waiting. It's been 13 years in Potiphar house in this prison, and then he's going to end up staying here two more years unexpectedly. Take a look with me, Genesis chapter 40. We're going to begin in verse 1 as we see a chapter that's really all about waiting. It says, sometime after this, so after he's been put in prison, we're not sure how exactly long, sometime after he's been put in prison, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. 
in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Now here's where we pick up this chapter. Joseph is in prison. He's risen to a position to kind of be the caretaker of certain prisoners. Now he's still a prisoner himself, but his job may be just to keep track of prisoners that come in, make sure their transition is smooth, make sure they understand the rules of prison, make sure they're protected. He has this job. Whatever it is in prison, he's got it. And while he's there, he's joined by, the text tells us, two officials of Pharaoh himself. We have a cupbearer and we have a bread maker. We have a cupbearer and we have a baker. And here they are, for some reason, thrown into prison. Now the text doesn't tell us why. Some believe that maybe they were thrown in prison because they were the taste testers of both the food and the drink that Pharaoh would drink. And that somehow along the line, Pharaoh may have gotten sick. And he blamed them for it. Certainly Pharaoh didn't die, so it wasn't a poisoning. But maybe he got sick off the food, and so he throws him into prison for a time. And says, all right, you guys are going to prison because your job was to make sure I don't get sick on this food. And so here they are in prison with Joseph. And Joseph is given authority over them. Take a look at verse 5. It says, in one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Now, this is a pretty interesting moment here because the cupbearer and the baker have dreams, but they have nowhere to run to get those dreams understood, nowhere to run to get those dreams interpreted. Now, in that day, in the Egyptian world, Pharaoh, like many imperial masters, had a monopoly on knowledge. What do I mean? Pharaoh believed that he was the one that held all knowledge and all all power and all authority. And so if you wanted to find something out, Pharaoh was the ultimate source of knowledge. And around him were, were a cabinet, if you want to call it that in our culture. Uh, they were experts who would help him in those tasks of bringing knowledge. And so what would happen is, in that day, if you had a dream, you would go to a certain place, a certain court, and there would be dream interpreters. And they would look back in the confines of books, what would be called dream books, and they would try to find a dream that matches what your dream might say and then give you an interpretation. So that's how they worked it. Um, now you might say, well, how did this happen if it wasn't for God? Well, remember we have an enemy who is called an angel of light. And, and a lot of times in the scripture, that enemy, right, Satan, tends to do similar things as God has power to do. But he does it through through sinful things, through, te- through wickedness, through de- deception. And so when we read this story, this isn't odd, if you were to read this as a Jew, this wouldn't be odd that there were dream books, and they would go to the dream books and try to find out the dream. The problem is it doesn't come from God. It's all deception. And so here they are, and there are no royal volumes to run to to find the image for their dreams, to get some interpretation. So Joseph here takes what I think is a risky move. Why? Because if Pharaoh has all knowledge, why would Joseph say these words? Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God? In other words, Joseph is attesting that real interpretation, true interpretations, don't come from manipulation, don't don't come from reading horoscopes or getting our palms read, that's all fake. Where it comes from is God himself. So Joseph is attesting that the only answer to the dreams 
is God. Now I want you to notice this because Joseph doesn't respond and say, hey, fellas, don't worry. I'm an expert on dreams. Let me tell them to you. Remember, Joseph is the one that had these dreams in the beginning of the story. By the way, this should be proof to us that his dreams were certainly on his mind. He understood the dreams he had in Genesis 37 came from God himself. By the way, Joseph also doesn't say this, which he could say. He doesn't say, hey, listen, guys, I had dreams of greatness. And all that happened to me was misery. I mean, so far, these dreams have brought me to jealousy, to hatred, to betrayal, to slavery, to imprisonment. My advice to you is forget the dreams. Don't worry about them. It's been nothing but pain for me. They don't mean anything anyway. Don't worry about it. Joseph doesn't do that. He turns to the Lord and he says, God is the one who holds our dreams. So why don't you share them with me? We know, I know the one who knows the dream interpretations. So in spite of his experience, he still is willing to turn to the Lord in this moment. Take a look at what happens next. In verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were the cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so I can get out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of Hebrews, and here also I have been, I've done nothing that they should put me into this prison. By the way, the word house there is the same word as the word pit in Genesis 37. He says, I'm in this pit, get me out. So he interprets the dream of the cupbearer. In three days, you're going to go back to your job, you're going to satisfy Pharaoh's purpose, and you're going to bring him the cup of the fruit of the vine again. Just when you get out, remember me. When you get out, remember me and maybe bring me up to Pharaoh because I'm in here unjustly. I am in here not of my own accord. This was not something I created or caused, so remember me. Now watch what happens next. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket of my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days will, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, and he'll hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Can you imagine being the baker? You just heard the interpretation given to the cupbearer. Hey, in three days you're going to rise back to power. You're going to be back in your position. Could you imagine the, cup bear, or the, the baker going, Hey, I got a dream too. Let me tell you mine. And he's thinking there's going to be some good report. And all of a sudden he tells the dream about these baskets and that birds come and eat the bread out of them. And, and Joseph, with all honesty, says to him, hey, buddy, here's the deal. In three days, your head's going to raise. But a very interesting expression in Hebrew. Notice both of them, your head will be lifted. Um, kind of an interesting play on encouragement. But your head's going to be lifted, except you're going to be hung, and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Have a good day. <laughs> Joseph here with great honesty tells him this dream and says, you're actually going to die. Now watch what happens. 
verse 20. On the third day, which is Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Notice what happens. Pharaoh has a birthday, and on this moment, his birthday, he calls back these workers. The baker gets hung, but the cupbearer is restored. And then we have one of the saddest verses in this entire story. What we find in, in verse 23, it says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He did not remember Joseph. You want to talk about a dream dying? Could it be in this moment? Now he's there two more years because the cupbearer, who he interpreted the dream rightly for, forgets him. You know, it's interesting in our lives that there is a connection between waiting and disappointment. If you've ever waited, there is a connection between waiting seasons and experiencing disappointment in life. I want you to think about this story for a moment. I mean, we read this chapter, and could anybody be more disappointed than Joseph in this moment? I mean, this is a case study on waiting. This is a case study on what it looks like to wait and to find disappointment. By the way, the Bible is filled with disappointed people. Over and over again, we run into characters who are disappointed in seasons of waiting. And what happens in the process is our dreams about life can create prisons of disappointment where we find ourselves disappointed about where life is taking us, disappointed about waiting. What we see here is very easily Joseph could have been disappointed with people. First of all, many of us, we find disappointment with people. You and I can experience that where we, are, we find people who fail us. They don't, they don't give us what we think they should or they don't fulfill something we think they should do in our lives. And we can be disappointed with people. Think about this for a moment. Here is Joseph in this in this story, in prison, he comes and helps these men by his own volition. He doesn't have to do this. He's in prison. He could leave them to their own. And he asks one thing. Verse 14, he says, remember me. When it's well with you, do the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of notice. He tells his story. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing. Remember, it was false accusation. He was actually righteous to Potiphar. Yet he's there by false accusation, by something he didn't do. In fact, he's there in prison for doing what is right. And he says, remember me. And yet we end that chapter with, he's forgotten. You want to talk about disappointed with people. Could not Joseph be disappointed with the people around him? Couldn't he have said, how dare they do that to me? Secondly, we could find disappointment with God. Right, all of a sudden, when we're disappointed with people, sometimes that can turn to say, God, how could you let this happen? By the way, you may find yourself at times disappointed with God. We all do. Where, where God doesn't answer a prayer in the way that we think. Or maybe he's not speaking at all to us, so to speak. Maybe he's not saying anything. And we can be disappointed to God. And we take that disappointment. And we turn it to God and say, God, if you truly are sovereign, then why would you let this happen to me? God, we are disappointed. Maybe for you, it's been prayer for, for healing in you. Uh, about a situation you're walking through. Maybe it's a job or a baby or a wife. And you faithfully and earnestly pray for weeks and months, even years, 
and yet it hasn't come, and you're disappointed with God. Can I tell you, here's what happens. Here is what happens in what I call the waiting cycle. Is waiting causes disappointment, but then disappointment turns into a discouragement. See, disappointment turns into discouragement where now I, I begin to dwell on it. Now the emotion of disappointment becomes the seed of discouragement in me. And I'm discouraged. I begin to have my face drawn down. I begin to look around. I don't feel satisfied with what I'm getting as answers. And I begin to cycle downward. I go from dis disappointment to discouragement. And then all of a sudden, discouragement becomes a seed of doubt. Discouragement becomes a seed of doubt. Discouragement, gr discouragement grows into doubt. Now think about this. If you've ever done this, I've done this, where all of a sudden I begin to question God. God, do you even exist? God, are you even there? God, do you even care? See, in waiting seasons, disappointment becomes discouragement, and discouragement can become a seed of doubt in us where we wonder, is God really attentive? Is God, does God really care? Is he even around? And we can begin in moments of waiting to feel a distance from God. Think about Joseph here. I imagine he could feel a distance from God, that God is somewhere distant and doesn't care about what's happening in his life. And all of a sudden, that doubt eventually leads to depression. Where now I'm overwhelmed with a thought process of discouragement that now overtakes me and I can't escape it. It puts me in the prison of depression. Can I just be honest with you? I have found this in my own life. As I've walked some of, some, some of these health things in 2019 and, and continued some of those testings that I'm in, I feel that sometimes. God, why is this happening? Is something going on? Am I missing something? God, are you, are, I know you've got bigger things to deal with than me, right? We begin to say those words, and all of a sudden, it can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety. It can lead to worry. And eventually, depression will lead to defeat. And what I mean by defeat is where we no longer live out the God-given dream for our lives to bring him glory and for our good. All of a sudden, we live in defeat. Can I tell you, if you read this story, you would think this is how Joseph would feel. Right? Disappointment will lead to discouragement. Discouragement will lead to doubt. Doubt will lead to depression. And finally, he's just sitting in prison, defeated. But we don't find that. And all that Joseph has been through, I mean, in prison for something he didn't do, thrown in a pit by his brothers just for telling them the dream because his father gave him a coat of many colors. Think about this. This is total injustice. And yet he's in this waiting season in prison, and yet he doesn't do that. So I want to ask this question as we end today. How do we overcome disappointment while waiting on God? How do we overcome disappointment? When, what do we do when people you trust turn against you? What do you do when the dreams turn to ashes? What do you do when it seems like you're just disappointed with God because you're waiting in a season that you don't want to wait. How do we deal with that? What do we do in the process of that? I want to look at three observations. What we find, I believe, in this text is while waiting is inevitable, it doesn't have to be miserable. While waiting is inevitable, it does not have to be miserable. Let me explain. Number one, here's what we find. When all else seems forgotten, remember the God who never forgets. I believe here in this prison, Joseph understands 
even more so that God is indeed in control. In fact, the fact that he looks at these men and says, hey, God is the interpreter of dreams, is he's, he's remembering the fact that it was God who gave him that dream in the first place in Genesis 37. He remembers a God who does not forget. In times where we feel forgotten, Joseph feels forgotten, remember a God who does not forget. Turn to the character of God. In those waiting seasons of life, we turn to the character of God, a God who's always with us. Now you might ask, well, Dave, then why, why does God cause us to wait? Why do we see waiting throughout the Bible? Why, why are we in this season of waiting if God is of good character? Well, can I tell you, if you're a parent, you know why. Let me think about this for a moment. You ever have your child or your grandchild ask for something? And it's not something they can't have or do. It's something they certainly can do, but it's not the time for it. And what are you doing when you say to your child, no, not right now? By the way, I remember as a kid, I, I, loved, I didn't mind hearing yes, and I didn't mind hearing no, but I hate it when my mom would say, not right now. Because what did that mean? It was a trick that my mom played on me to say no. But she didn't want me to cry. Right? Not right now. And we begin to think that not right now with God means not right now, like this is a bad thing. But I want you to think about this for a moment as we read this story. Why do we say that to our kids? Why do we say to our kids, not right now? Why do we say to them at times, hey, this isn't going to work right now? What we're actually doing is we're having them wait because we know that if they cannot first wait, they'll never trust. Right? What we really want our kids to do is trust us and our timing. And so by saying, hey, you're going to have to wait for this, we're trying to build their trust that they believe our timing is right. This is true of God. Why does God bring us waiting seasons? Because waiting has a way of revealing our motives. Isn't it true, if you want to find out what people really are like, put them in a season of waiting. You want to find out, you want to see the best and worst of people, Put them in a season where they have to wait. All of a sudden, you'll find people that have good motives, what seems to be good motives, have very bad motives when they're waiting for a time. So waiting actually reveals our motives. It also reveals our trust. When I'm disappointed by God and I seem to be waiting, it's because God is trying to reveal that this something that I'm waiting for has displanted or implanted with him, taken away him, and we've made it more important. Or let me put it this way. We long for something more important than God. So when we're waiting, it is proof that when we get disappointed, we're waiting for something we think is more important than God. And so what is God doing? God is killing that thing so that we actually turn to him, that we actually find our strength and our hope in him. So when we're disappointed, when we're waiting, the problem is with our faith. There's something I'm longing for more than him, more than the satisfying truth of who God is in my life. So what is he doing? He's revealing that. In fact, can I say that I believe waiting is one of the most common tools that God uses to get a hold of us. Why? Because when we're waiting, our feet are poised to move forward or backwards. When we're in a waiting season, what is he doing? He's drawing us into faith. He's calling us into trust. This is, this is, I love this picture in Psalm 62. The psalmist writes this. He says, and it, by the way, a season of waiting. David is waiting here. And he writes, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Notice that. For God, you alone. 
Right? I'm not waiting for a circumstance. I'm not waiting on people. You alone, God, are the one. From you comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. He says, I'm waiting on God, but I'm not shaken. Why? Because it's him I'm waiting for. And in the midst of that, I know that he is my shelter. I know that he is my rock. I know that he is a fortress for my soul. We come to the New Testament. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, he writes it this way. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the word of God. For I will never leave you nor forsake you, forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'm not fearing. Why? Because he's with me. God will never leave me or forsake me. You and I read this. You see Joseph. It seems like God has forsaken him. It seems certainly the cupbearer forsook him. But God will never forsake us. God is present and God has purpose. God is present and God has purpose. In fact, if you want proof of that, you might feel in your life, I've felt in my life like God has forsaken. There's times I feel that way, but it's not true. You don't have to look any further than the cross, right? I mean, the cross is the ultimate expression of the fact that God does not forsake us. If there was any moment in time in history where God could say, I'm done, I'm forsaking them. Was it the cross? Was it not the cross? I mean, he's on the cross, and he's taking the sin upon himself, the sin of the world upon himself. That means for you and I, the sin that we would commit in the future, the sin that we would commit in our day, he was taking on himself. And on the cross, he takes sin upon himself, and he doesn't say, I'm out. He doesn't say, forget them. He doesn't say, I don't have to do this. Could he have done all those things? Absolutely. And he would have been right to do them. He would have been just to do it. But he doesn't. In the on the cross, he takes our sin and willingly goes to death. Then he goes into a tomb, a borrowed tomb, not even his own. And three days later, he walks to the grave to prove that he will not forsake us. In our most ugliest moments, sinful moments, he does not forsake us. In the waiting moments of life, he does not forsake us. He is there. If he was there on the cross for our sins... He is there in our lives when we're waiting for him to act. He does not forsake us. And so what can man do to us? He does not forsake us, then I am not shaken. That's the image. The cross is proof that God is with us. So when we are waiting, remind ourselves of God's character. Remind ourselves of his goodness. That leads to the second observation. How do we wait? How do we wait in discipline? with disappointment? In those disappointing moments where we're waiting on God, how do we respond? Number two, allow the waiting room of life to become the place of faithful living. Allow the waiting room of life to become a place of faithful living. I want you to see what's interesting here. Joseph was put in charge of these prisoners. And we come to verse 7, and it says, So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? Isn't that interesting? Why are your faces downcast now, I want you to think about that question for a moment. Joseph didn't have to ask this question. And even the fact that he asked it is a little odd, isn't it? Can you imagine the cupbearer and the baker going, Hello, Joseph. We're in prison. Like, you want to know why our faces are downcast? Look around you. Like, we're in prison. This is not, this is not a, this isn't a guessing game here. You don't have to take any guesses. You know why we're downcast. We're sitting in prison for something we did, and we're wondering when are we going to get out. I mean, I could imagine them looking at him saying, hey, genius, look around. We, we lost our job. We're in prison. Life stinks. But Joseph doesn't. Joseph, Joseph was willing to ask the question to do the job 
that was right in front of him. I want you to see this. Joseph doesn't sit there in prison and plot revenge, which is a long list of people that he could list that have treated him poorly. He doesn't sit in prison and become bitter and angry. By the way, in that, in that, in that waiting cycle, you could write anger in every one of those. Why? Because in any moment we can get angry about that. He doesn't sit in prison angry and bitter. He doesn't sit in, in prison and wallow in self-pity. Well, how could they do this to me? And, and he, he didn't sit in self-pity and be wrapped in, in his own problems and his own predicaments that he can't see someone else's problems. Many people do that, by the way. They sit in self-pity, and what self-pity does is actually playing the blame game. It's everybody else's fault. Well, they did this to me, and they did that to me, and this person, and this church, and this, right? All of a sudden, we're wallowing in self-pity so that everybody else gets the blame instead of standing up and doing what God has called us to do. He, he doesn't sit here and isolate himself. How easy is it for us to stop doing, right? The temptation in this moment is to quit being productive, to hunker down and just to survive, to wait out the depression, to wait out the pain, to wait out the hurt, to wait out the sense of abandonment. Joseph could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? His waiting is not passive. His waiting is active. His waiting is doing something. He does what's right in front of him. He, he's, he's not passively waiting, he's actively waiting. Here's the point. When you're in the waiting room of life, it's a call to faithful living. Do what's right in front of you. Serve God faithfully. Do what's right in front of you. The next step you have to take, you're waiting for something else, do what's right in front of you obediently. Do what the next step will be. See, Joseph understood that weightlands don't have to become wastelands. When we're waiting on God, when we're waiting for an answer, Weightlands do not have to become wastelands. And Joseph understood this. He was serving the way God intended for him to serve in spite of the situation he's in. He's calling us to be faithful with what's in front of us. When we don't have an answer, when we're waiting for God, when we're waiting for people, do what's right in front of us. And then lastly, this observation, I believe Joseph knew full well, that is this. Look to the future with expectancy but be prepared for unexpected answers. Now, we're going to see this story played out. I want to encourage you, do not miss the next few weeks where this, this series will kind of take a pinnacle ride and we'll get to the ultimate purpose of this story. But, but I want you to see here that Joseph had some expectancy. In fact, notice his request in verse 14. Remember me when it was well with you, and please do not do to me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. Do you see what, what Joseph's doing? He is seeing the future. He's realizing, wait a minute, God, you put me in this prison, but there's an opportunity to even be mentioned to Pharaoh because you brought these prisoners in. He's understanding, he's expecting how God is going to answer, even though it's going to come unexpectedly. He is looking to the future with anticipation. When we're in a waiting season, you and I today can look at the future with even more confidence. Why? Because we know the end of the story. We know that God is working out his goodness and his grace. He's working out his calling in our lives. We can actually have more anticipation about the future in our waiting seasons than even Joseph had. Why? Because we know that God is not just working on a solution for us. He is working in us. God is not just up there with a, a platter and saying, all right, I'm going to bring you a solution. Ta-da. God is actually working in our souls in this moment. In our waiting season, he's working in us. And he's building in us what we could never be. He's making us what we can never be. The waiting season is profitable. And it's preparing us for a future that God has, wants to give us. A future moment that God is preparing us for. 
Can I tell you, you see this all through the Bible. I mean, right? These waiting moments were all about preparation for the future. 20 chapters of Joseph's life. Noah, Noah the ark, waited five months for the floodwaters to subside after the ark finally took land. Think about that. Why wait five months? God, who brought the floods, could have taken the flood away. Why wait? There's preparation. Future expectancy. Abraham and Sarah got the promise of a son, and they waited 24 years in their old age, waiting for a child to be born. Preparation. 130 years to deliver uh, the people of Israel from Egypt to out of slavery into the promised land. 40 years. 11-day journey. Took them 40 years. Why? Preparation. Why do we see 40 years in the wilderness, 130 years in slavery, 15 years, David was anointed king until he became king. 400 years at the close of the Old Testament until the Messiah comes. Why? Because God was preparing the way, preparing the future, making it worthwhile. Here's the point. What we find all throughout the Bible is that waiting is always worth it. If we wait on the Lord, it's worth it. When we wait rightly, the work that God is doing in us will be worth it in the end. So let me end with this. How do we wait? I love what Warren Wiersbe says about this story. He says, God permitted Joseph to be treated unjustly and put into prison to help his, build his character and prepare him for the task that lay ahead. The prison is a school where Joseph learned to wait on the Lord. He would learn that God's delays are not God's denials. And can I say to you this morning, maybe you're in a school of waiting right now. God is there. He's there and he's working. And can I tell you, here's some simple things I think you can do in that season of waiting. First of all, pray. Pray, but pray the character of God. God, you're merciful. God, you're loving. God, you're gracious. Your grace is sufficient. God, you are all-powerful. Remind yourself in your prayers of who God is and thank God for his character. God, you're holy. God, you're good. You, it's something about prayer that attunes us to who God is. Secondly, praise. Praise. Spend some time praising God. Write down how he's been faithful in your life. Write down what he's teaching you in the season of waiting. Write down what he's teaching you. Keep a journal in that moment if you're in a season of waiting. It's helpful to do that. Be present. Do what's right in front of you. Don't let the season of waiting be a time to pull back away from things. Let the season of waiting be what you press into what's in front of you. And do what God has called you to do. And then, then lastly, prepare for the future. If God has you waiting, it's because he loves you. It's because he loves me because he has something yet for me to do for his glory and his namesake. See, a season of waiting can be a time where dreams come to die or it can be a time where God's dream for our lives, his glory, our good, conform us like Christ can actually come alive. Is, is it a place where our dreams will die or a place where God's dream for me will come alive? That's the question. And so if you're waiting, it's a place for God's dreams to come alive in you for God's purpose in you to be prepared for. I'm going to ask you, would you bow right where you are? Would you bow with me as we pray? If you're here and you don't know Christ, today's a perfect day. The cross is proof that God is with you, that God wants to rescue you. The Word says that He can open your eyes. He can turn your heart. He can move you into faith. And maybe today would be the day of your salvation. Don't leave here without coming to know Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. If you're here and you know Christ and you're in a waiting season, know that he is working out his plan. Trust him. It's a call to trust. It's a call to believe. God, I want to thank you for this reminder of Genesis 40. 
Lord, I know in my own life I've found myself in seasons of waiting and wondering. And in those seasons, it has caused disappointment at times and even depression at times and, and even some, some ounces of doubt to say, God, are you really at work? Do you really care? And God, all along, I realize that you're not just working a solution, you're working in me. You're working deeper faith in me. You're building deeper trust in me. You're helping me learn what it looks like to look with expectancy to the future. And Lord, if all else fails, if we wait and we die, then we get what we really desire, what we really need, and that is we become conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And that is the work you're doing in us. So God, may we trust. In the seasons of waiting, may we do what's right in front of us, in season of waiting, may we run to your character and may we look expectantly to the future, even if it's an unexpected answer like Joseph, he'll be, become the second in command of Egypt. And so God, remind us that you are good, that you are faithful, that your spirit leads us in our lives only to where you desire. And may we have the heart to understand, the ears to hear, and the obedience to listen. In your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen.